Good afternoon and welcome to the fifth episode of Wyoming Law Pod. I'm excited today we've got our first non-attorney guest on the show. Josie Pacheco is retired from the state of Wyoming after 21 years of service. After retirement, she's been doing the little things she didn't have time to do before, updating her house and taking care of her new hobby, beekeeping. Josie started the state of Wyoming with workers' compensation as a reception clerk, learning the details of her job, and then she worked her way up to a senior claims analyst. She was very passionate about her job. Josie left the division in 2018, and she continues to get calls from claimants for the direction of their claims. We're very excited to have her here today because we think it'll give both attorneys and claimants a whole new perspective on the workman's comp uh, system and how to operate within it. Thank you very much for being a guest today, Josie. Thank you for inviting me. I guess, first of all, kind of give our listeners an idea of what it went into an average day if there was such a thing when you were working as a claims analyst? Very quiet from 6 o'clock until 8 o'clock, and then the phones start ringing off the hook. (laughs) And then working your claims, your bills, and all your messages in so that you can get everybody called back and get all your claims done. What hours did you work then, typically, as a claims analyst? In order to get a lot of work processed, I started at 6, 6.30, and 7, uh, depending on the time of the year like in the spring start coming in a little bit earlier so that you can your phones aren't ringing and your you can get your work done so it's, would that be like a designated quiet time or you wouldn't have to take any phone calls or receive yes. emails yes that would be a designated quiet time for me okay and then so would you work till three thirty in the afternoon or three thirty average yeah so it is an eight hour 40 eight hour day 40 hour week yes it was and did you have the freedom to kind of designate times when you would and wouldn't take phone calls? We were instructed to always answer our phone. So there weren't times where you were like dead time. So I chose to come in earlier hours so I could have that time, that freedom to start doing work that needed to be done without being interrupted by the phone. However, my claimants knew that I was there early and those that needed a call could call at that time. But for the most part, people called after eight. So would the claimants have a direct line to you or would they need to go through a receptionist to get a hold of you? No, we have our direct line. So with that direct line, if, if you're on the phone, does it automatically go into voicemail? No, the phone rings and you pick it up. So you're never allowed to star your phone, meaning turn off your ringer and let it go to voicemail. You were instructed that you always had to answer your phone, unless you were on the phone. And that's, I guess that's what I meant. If you were on the phone, then would it go to voicemail or what was the process? Yes, it would go to voicemail if I was uh, currently on a phone call. When you start out for the division, uh, how did they train you or do they just kind of throw you to the wolves or what's the (laughs) process of becoming a claims analyst? When I started as a claims analyst we didn't have a trainer so basically i learned on my own uh as time went on they had someone who trained and they went through a training process and usually it was 30 to 60 days i'm not quite sure because i really never had to go through that pretty much i learned from keeping my statute book open in front of me and when i took calls i looked up information and um if I didn't have it, I'd call them back with it. So pretty much I self-trained. 
about how long did it take you to feel comfortable um, handling different claims? I would say that whole training period for the basic information was two to three years because as laws change, so does your job. So you are always learning the process of bills, paying bills, the process of um, sending claims to hearing would change. So everything is always changing. So you had to learn something different all the time. When you started, did all of the claims go to the Office of Administrative Hearing or were some of the cases still going to district court? I believe they were going to the Office of Administrative Hearings. It's been so long uh, that I don't even remember now. But every time we created a package that needed to go to hearing, they went through the managers and the managers went through your package and there was criteria you had to meet if all your information wasn't there then they'd send it back and you had to complete the package again so once it got to the managers they're the ones that send it on you basically learned through teaching yourself and then probably a combination of positive and negative feedback from your managers yes exactly that's a pretty pretty difficult way to learn uh, it is a difficult <laughs> way to learn. Has the has it, the system improved now, or is it pretty much the same? No, the system has improved. Like I said before, uh, at the time that I became an analyst, that's when they designated more money to hire more attorneys. Uh, sorry, attorneys, analysts, and they hired four or six of us at that time, during that time period, and we all didn't get that specified training that we needed to become a claims analyst. So my very first job that I did for the first two weeks was paying temporary total disability. And then um, in the meantime, you're taking phone calls and and, uh, answering emails and referring things to hearing and with no specified (laughs) training. So... As it went on, you just learn from hit or miss, I guess. But I also worked as um, a clerk up front for a year and a half. So we did letters there. We took phone calls. We could look up payments. So I knew all of that already from the year before. And so that really helped becoming that claims analyst. Um, A few years after I became a claims analyst, they did away with clerical people being able to give out any information so that was already with me when they started you out how many active cases did they give you I believe in the beginning I had a hundred and sixty and then the as you learned they add on and as everything is going okay and you're starting to produce more work they add on so by the time I left I was close to 400 500 claims it's hard for me to even get my head around how you can begin to manage that many cases i mean is it a combination of software and systems or how do you how do you manage that without going crazy or do you just go crazy you just go crazy (laughs) you just take it day at a time um 
you work the work that's in front of you you take the calls that come in and that's why i was a stickler about trying to answer all my phone calls when they came in because if you let your phone go to voicemail you have to spend time writing down the message trying to figure out what the call was about and then calling the person and you could have just taken care of that in a minute and um, a, a lot of times you're looking up to see, all right, what happened yesterday with this person and then calling them back and it was a simple question or did I just get my check? I was just wondering if I got my check today or if it went out last week or something simple. So it's just better to take the calls rather than trying to call everybody back. What percentage of the calls would you say are just those simple kind of easy questions versus complicated ones? I would say... Less than 10% were simple calls. Okay. The other calls were what's going on with this bill or I need to see a doctor or when is my uh, when is my impairment rating or did you refer to my claim to hearing? <laughs> so things that you have to literally have to look up the claim number, get into their claim notes and figure out where we were at that point. And how long did it take you to build up to the point where you're managing four to 500 cases at a time? Um, I would say six months to a year. That's amazing. That's, that's a pretty quick learning curve. Yeah. You don't have time to do much <laughs> once you sit down. <laughs> when you were there, was there kind of a high initial turnover? I mean, lots of people come in and be like, whoa, this just is not for me. This is an awful lot. Yes, I I believe there was at a at a at a point when we moved uh, to the address on Pershing because we live um, lived worked at the Herschler building and once we worked at the Pershing building you could see more of what was going on and when a unit was short a claims analyst if our unit or district was caught up then we would need to go and help with the other district to help them with their claims because being short one person is going to add a lot of extra phone calls and a lot of extra work because one you don't know the person you don't know that workload you don't know how that person processed their workload so you're almost learning a whole new workload by the time you're doing theirs and you're taking up much more of your own time, so. And there's got to be just so many different personalities that you're dealing with. That's got to be hard to come, just jump into a situation where there's already a relationship and be like, oh, I'm I'm new for today. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there are uh, many different personalities, but you have to be a people person. You have to be very understanding. You have to have a sense of, um, I'm lost, the word I'm looking for compassion for claimants because not all claimants are out there to get money most claimants 99 percent of claimants really did get hurt and they really do have pain and they all have a different pain from the next person and my motto always was every person's body is different you know, and it's it's really wonderful for me to hear that from you um, because often as a personal injury and work comp attorney, people just assume that 
our clients are out there, you know, just to get money or that they weren't really heard. And my experience over the years has been almost identical to that. You know, I've had one or two cases out of hundreds where people were, you know, faking it or weren't entitled to benefits. And one of the cases, the client was mentally ill. In the other case, the person was legitimately faking it. But that's, you know, literally that 1%. So it's nice to hear that the broader experience is the same, too. Mm-hmm. You just have to uh, have a... Uh, um, an eye open for red flags if uh, they're not getting medications then why are you still on workers comp or if they are getting more and more medications but their um, pain levels aren't going down there's just a lot of different red flags that you watch for to find out who really needs different kind of care or is this somebody that's really faking it? So for the most part, like I said before, for the most part, people are not faking it. I don't think anybody really wants a fake pain. And I definitely want to talk about the red flags and stuff a little bit later on, but I think that that is a good segue into the first kind of section that we want to talk about today for claimants. And also as an attorney, I mean, it basically – People eventually come to us usually because there's some kind of failure in communication, whether it's like a contract dispute, a divorce. Um, almost every dispute originates with a failure or breakdown in communication. And so I'd first like to give the claimants out there an idea of kind of some do's and don'ts and maybe what to expect. Um, one of the things I was wondering is when someone, when a claimant is first injured, should they reach out? to the claims analyst, or is it better for them just to sit back and wait for the claims analyst to contact them about the case? One thing is that if they reached out to us and we don't have an injury report, we wouldn't really know what anything was, and there's no way to record our conversations. Once the injury report is reviewed by the claims analyst and we have information needed then we always reach out first and say all right this is my name this is where we are and you're going to be getting a letter if it's a simple finger cut most of the times we call to give them the claim number make sure you give this to the doctor and call me if there's any questions and that's it we open the claim because it's simple cut and dry cut finger they didn't come to work with the cut finger already so you know that they cut it at work then you have the claims that come in and they are back injuries. Sometimes they come in with medical records because they didn't file the claim right away. And you've got medical records, you can make a determination at that point. Sometimes we need additional medical records to make that determination. Maybe what we got just didn't explain what the injury was. And there's forms that need to be filled out, of course, if, they're, if they've got lost time. They have to fill out the temporary total disability form. So as everything starts to flow in and you get more information, you make the contact with the claimant because they don't know where their claim is. If you don't reach out and they don't call you, well, like you said, the communication's not there. Somebody has to reach out. If you have the information, you reach out. If they call and say, did you get that medical record? And you look in there and maybe you just didn't have time to see it it maybe hasn't come through your workflow but you can see it that it's there 
uh, you can talk about it and talk about what's going on with them. So I guess every situation, it just depends on what kind of claim it is and how quick we get the information to get their claim processed. If a claimant isn't sure, then would it be good for them to just reach out and say hello? Yes, yes, it would. I mean, they could call and say, they'll call the front desk, actually, and the front desk would say, well, we don't have a claim number for you, and then they would probably advise them to file the claim. But maybe the claim number's there. I just don't have that injury report coming across my desk yet. Once I have the claim number or the claims analyst has the claims number, then they're able to at least go through the claim, make sure that all the information on the claim is correct, birth date, social security number. There's just so much information on the injury report that maybe something got entered incorrectly because sometimes the employers fill out those injury reports and they may get a birth date wrong or they may get the injury wrong. You've got to have the full story of what happened. On that note, how important is it for the claimant to review the injury report and make sure that it's accurate? Very important because the injury, if the injury date is reported incorrectly and then they went to the doctor two days before it was on whatever the employer says they had an injury on the 10th and the claimant says, no, that was the 8th and I did go to the doctor on the 8th and here's the medical report. Well, you've got two different dates. Now you've got to go into the system and change the injury date and you want all the dates to be correct. You want all the information to be correct. You may have a social security number out there that's incorrect off by one number. Well, you may be going under the, under the, I want to say another claim uh, person, uh, claimant, because they may have three claims with uh, the last four of 111 and yours is 112, but if they report it 111, you're going to fall under him. So at that point, you are him or her, and you're not you. So all that information needs to be checked. So that's why we do a claim review before we even call that claimant. Okay. And then if the claimant has like a prior history or pre-existing injuries, will you let them know what additional medical records that you need or do you like them to just go ahead and try and bring that into you? So if a claimant has a first injury report from two years ago and then you get a new injury report and just say it's back, then you're going to go into the old records because you, you still have access to all those records. And you're going to go to that old claim number, see where their treatment ended, see if the doctor said they'd resolved, see if this is going to be an ongoing. And then when you get the new claim, you're going to be asking what part of the spine was it? Is it the same area? Um, you're going to need medical records to prove that this is a different section of the, of the spine because workers' comp, one of the most important things that you need to explain to a claimant is your neck is not your upper um, back and your thoracic spine is not your lower back, your lumbar spine. So you have to be very specific at what level because workers comp buys that level or levels. If you have a different level, then it's surely going to be a different claim. If it is the same level, then you're going to need to find out, was that old claim completely resolved? 
was he still seeing the doctor? Is this a re-injury or is this a new injury? And does the division have uh, written guidelines for the claims analyst on how to determine whether an injury is compensable or not? A claims analyst has access to a nurse case manager and with very complicated um, body parts like the spine, a nurse is very valuable on helping you determine whether this is a new injury or a prior injury. And would that also be true with like determining that it's pre-existing and not related to employment? Right. And we look at causation. You know, um, the guy might have had a bad neck from the last claim. But in the new claim, he's walking down the street and a brick falls down and hits him on the head. Well, that's a new claim. We're going to start picking up everything from that day for that new injury because it might have affect the old claim, but now the old claim is going to be obsolete. They're going to close that claim down and start new all over again with a new claim. Okay. Does that make sense? That does make total sense. Back to like the basics of communication, uh, is it better to do the phone call or is it easier for email? Well, email is a, a log of what you actually said and it's going to go in that person's file so those emails are printed and they go to the file so it's exactly what you said and what they said so either way we have recorded phone calls and if something was not said and and they did something different <laughs> does that anyhow um, it's a recorded call, so it's just like an email. So if you have the time to do that, some people prefer emails. Some people, you cannot talk to them about their claims because they're hot. They want everything written down anyway, so some claimants prefer to have emails. Uh, some claims analysts don't. I mean, everybody's personalities at some point clash, so sometimes an email is the only way you can communicate. So whatever is good for that claimant and that claims analyst. That's probably the way you should go. So is that a conversation that a claimant should have with their claims analyst to find out what's going to work best for them? I think the claims analyst prefer to have the phone call. But if it's a way that um, I had somebody who was hard of hearing and could never understand me on the phone. So it was a lot easier for me to write an email to him and his wife, and then they would respond. But all those, like I said, those conversations were always printed out and would go to the file. So they, we had evidence that that claims analyst, um, what that claims analyst um, said to that claimant and what the claimant said to us. So at the end of all my conversations, I would always ask, does that make sense? <laughs> do you understand that? Do I need to say something different? Because it's important for that communication to be there. Or they go away just as empty as when you first started the conversation. And how often do those recorded conversations, I mean, do they end up being used to determine what was actually said? Or is it just kind of there for the records? It was there for the record. I don't think we had people who really needed to have somebody else review the conversation. I think for the most part, conversations over the phone were straightforward. I don't believe that I had anybody 
um, who did that except for if I was short, maybe I had a bad day going and I was really busy and they call my manager and say she was really condescending <laughs> to me and then the manager would listen to the conversation and then call me in and say all right so they said that you said this and that and I said well that wasn't how I recall it and then they'd play it and whatever it was that I said I heard and I'd say well that was really kind of different or that's exactly what I said so so it's probably important for claimants to know that uh, their analysts have bad days too just like other people and may not reflect them or their claim yes and I, I've had those types of claimants who we started off on the wrong foot and at some point you just start really being nicer so that they know that you're genuine and that okay well she must have had a bad day and I had claim claimants who would actually call me later and say wow remember when we couldn't even talk because we didn't get along and now we are and it's like well you know probably had a bad day one of us had a a bad hard time and it could have been them or it could have been myself and you just get through those times because there's definitely going to be lots of days that claimants are having bad days and it sounds like with the caseload of the analysts that there's probably a fair number of bad days for analysts too yes and we're expected to to just say put that on the burner and move to your phone call <laughs> and sometimes it's hard you're busy you're required to review x amount of claim injury reports a, a day you're required to meet that quota every single day and if you don't then you're behind and then you get called in and when you're not doing it then of course that's going to come across your voice because you're stressed out you're trying to get your work done and here's this person calling me to find out if his check went out <laughs> when we've already told him look I called you last week I told you that your check was going to go out on this date but now you're calling me to find out if it went out <laughs> so those are times that I would say well you know I'm trying to get my work done and here's this person calling me for the check and we can get grumpy you know what is that quota that you were mentioning the daily quota um I believe we were supposed to get seven and I you know I've been gone for two years now and and the quota may have changed however at that time it's real difficult to pay all your bills and meet the quota of injury reports plus make all your phone calls within 24 hours of a call and but you got to do it you've got to find the time and there were a lot of times where I worked through lunch almost always worked through breaks and I hardly ever got out at my time at 3 30 or 4 30 when I was leaving wow and then what's the consequence if you don't make your timeline then you I guess don't get a good word from your manager but I think my manager knew that I had a lot a lot of claims and I had a lot a lot of phone calls and they were able to record how many calls you got in a day so you some days you'd go through your logbook and then they want to look at your logbook and you take the logbook in there and they know they knew that for the most part you were on the phone all day so there was hardly any time to do your claims but get out there and do them today <laughs> so so in terms of claimants uh, contacting their analysts like when is it just too much I mean when are they kind of crossing the line of 
effectively communicating and becoming burdensome and really, you know, not only slowing down the process for themselves, but obviously hurting other claims or claimants in the process. Well, every single injury report required a call and it was called a three point. So you had to make a phone call to the employer. You had to make a phone call to the claimant and you had to make a phone call to the healthcare provider if it was known. So the three point had to be made on every claim, even if it was a finger cut. Everybody got a phone call. Just shifting gears a little bit, but what is one guaranteed way that a claimant could really just tick you off as an analyst? <laughs> if they called three and four times a day, if they called every single day, I had one claimant who just needed to talk to somebody every day. <laughs> so at some point, you just got to say, you know what, I'm super busy today. I'll call you next week. But it was just to gab most of the time. So that one person, I finally just had to say, you know, I'm really sorry. I have so many claims. I can't call you every day and I can't just chit chat because my phones are being monitored by my manager. And if it's not business, then I can't talk. And it it's really hard for me to even say that because I'm the kind of person that's very caring. And if they wanted to talk about how bad they hurt today and what they had to do tomorrow and were they going to get up to tomorrow, <laughs> you know, I, I felt like I needed to hear it. But yet my workload was just too much, you know, to do those kind of things. So, And along with the work comp benefits, does the division produce any kind of list of like community resources and things like that to help injured workers while they're kind of dealing with the transition time? The transition time into getting paid or before they go back to work? Well, kind of uh, either one. Uh, we just deal with people, you know, whose benefits may have been cut off, but they aren't quite ready to return to work or they haven't gotten their benefits yet. And so we often refer them to different community resources. And I didn't know if the division had anything like that. So we shouldn't just cut off benefits if they're going to be in limbo. There's a lot of options. There's Voc Rehab. There are other awards that they can apply for. They they should be warned before that time period comes. So there shouldn't be a lapse and no money and putting them on the street. So if you know that somebody's going to get an impairment rating, you need to tell them right away. You're going to get some money from the impairment money, but since we don't know what the amount of uh, percentage is and how much you're going to get, I can tell you that you can start going to voc rehab. It doesn't look like you're going to be going back to job that you were doing before, or if you need to contact your employer about light duty and he's got it and you can go back to work, we can still schedule the impairment rating and you'll get extra money. But there are, <clears throat> excuse me, are options, like I said, voc rehab, get that started. If you know that school isn't going to start until the fall, then the best time for you to start going to voc rehab is in the spring. If you know that your benefits are going to be terminated sometime in the summer, you don't want to be in limbo. So the claims analysts should be monitoring their claims and letting their people know that at this point in time, you're going to be without money. So you start, you got to start making decisions on if you're going to go back to work, if you're going to go to voc rehab and get paid to go to school because you're going to get money from that, go to school, and you're going to get paid for it. So, Now, is that something that the claimant needs to be proactive about asking about, or is that something that the claims analyst should be proactive in telling 
the claimant about? Some claimants read their material thoroughly. Some don't understand it. So I would start at the beginning of my claim and say, at some point, we're going to get to whether or not you can return to work or not. So at that point, we need to discuss you going back to work or applying for other benefits. But we're not there now. And sometimes it was confusing to some. To others, it was good information to have. They'd say, all right, are we at that point right now? And you'd say yes or no. So some of those claimants that read their packets already knew when that time was coming. They've already been through their physical therapy. They already know they're going to get released pretty soon. They could, some of those people were already going back to work, and you're the one that's going to initiate whether they have to have an impairment rating. So they should not have to be at a point where they're completely off of any kind of benefit and how without is that, knowing ahead of time. Sure. And so how is that decision made to send out, you know, to find out if they need an impairment rating? Um, there are letters that go out to their doctors that ask them, is so-and-so at maximum medical improvement? And if they, some of those doctors would fill out the form and say they're not ready, they're, they won't be ready for six more months, you put yourself a little reminder on the computer, and at six months you send the letter back out to the doctor or you get them rated because some of those doctors are very specific. He will be at maximum medical improvement on June 1st, and it's May. On June 1st, you're sending them for an impairment rating. So typically, it's you try to do it based upon the recommendations of the treating physician? Um, yes. If the treating physician is cooperating with workers' comp, that's the best way to go because they are not going to question their own doctor. How many doctors, I noticed you used the word cooperating. How many, what percentage would you say cooperate and what percentage don't cooperate with work comp? Oh, there were very few that didn't. So I'm going to say of just say 30 doctors that you work with, you got maybe one or two that are just not cooperating. You know, they don't want to fill out the paperwork. They think it's a waste of their time. Um, some doctors just don't communicate, you know. Uh, and I had a couple of those doctors. And you're calling. I sent the form last week. Can you send it again? And you send it again, and it's still not coming in. But that's money that you continue to pay out to your claimant because your doctor's not telling their MMI at a point where the doctor's not cooperating that's when you send them for an independent medical evaluation and find out is this guy at MMI can we get him rated and so that's typically a situation that's caused by the treating doctor not by the claims the analyst claimant. okay because yeah. we that tends to be one of the ones that we see more frequently in the cases where claimants are looking for attorneys, but it doesn't sound like it's very typical in the general scheme of things. No, I don't, I don't think, um, I think that you can actually keep a claim from going to court if you just listen and look at your timelines and make sure that everything was done, that you've given all the information, all that communication that you have. You have letters that communicate with the claimant that says, um, once you have your impairment, you can go for a permanent partial disability and it explains it. And or you can go for voc rehab and it explains it. Ask your claims analysts what you're looking at. A lot of times um, 
I believe that I told you the story about my six-year-old gentleman who just felt like he's not at retirement age. He needed to put in more time. And what was he going to do because he wasn't going to have money, but he's getting released. And I literally talked him into going to voc rehab at 60 years old. And he now has his company. I mean, if you communicate and tell them the benefits of it, some of them are just scared. They haven't been to school in 40, 50 years, you know, they're, they're scared. Some of them don't have a GED. And you have to say, look, if you're going to go someplace and do something, you're 40 years old, what are you going to do? You, you're not going to work. Are you going to, do you have the, the skills to sit at a computer or are you going to be a greeter at Walmart? You know, what, what are you going to do? At some point, if you don't have a GED, show them where to go. Tell them they can go to the college and get a GED while they're on temporary total disability because they're wasting their time if they're just at home on temporary total disability. For sure. Yeah. So I asked you what would what a claimant could do to really upset you. How about what is, <laughs> what about a claimant's attorney? What what can they do to really set off a claims <laughs> analyst? Oh, where the where are the medical records for this claimant that I sent in two weeks ago? And I think it's all just because the attorney doesn't really know the process. And so the process is when those letters come in requesting medical records for a hearing, they're not sent to the claims analyst. They are logged on the screen that everybody can read, but the attorney probably is needing to contact the records manager because the records manager is the person that gets those, and the records manager is the one that prints those all out. And then they have a team of I'm going to say that when I left there, there was a team of four. So she would have each one of those persons printing out records and getting those ready for the attorneys. But the attorneys are not the only ones that need a medical file. Treating physicians need medical files. And um, book rehab needs a medical file. And when a claimant changes doctors, the new physician needs a medical file. So they're constantly printing records all day long. So if we got 100 requests for medical files, well, your request is there, and I'm not doing it. <laughs> so so it does no good if the attorney's aggressive or mean or rude. To calling the claims analyst and just getting them angry because they don't have the medical file. It has nothing to do with the claims analyst. The claims analyst can say, yes, we received it, and right now I'm reading a note there that says they're in the process of printing. or. They did get it, but it looks like she's had it for two weeks. Let me make a phone call for you and find out. Or here's the number. You can call and find out where you are in the in the, the pool line, I guess if that's how you want to say it. But And so are there rules governing your communications with claimants' attorneys? Kind there of pre-litigation? What are what yes, are those rules? And, and for the most part, attorneys should actually go through the division's attorney. That's the best way to do things is don't call the claims analyst. They're just, you're going to get frustrated because some claims analysts are real sticklers about how much information they can give the attorney, the claimant's attorney. The best thing is go to the division's attorney because the division's attorney is going to tell you what they have. If they have your records, they, they might have all the records. They just haven't sent you those records yet. Um, and a lot of times the attorney's division gets two copies and he's supposed to send it to the to the claimant's attorney and hasn't done it yet. 
Now, say the situation arises where it hasn't, an uh, issue has not been referred to hearing yet. Is it okay then for the claimant's attorney to talk with the analyst, or is it still better to try and run through a, a different channel? Um, you can go through the division's attorney, or you can ask the claimant to call the claims analyst to find out if they've sent it. Some analysts don't want <laughs> to be bothered by the claimant asking, when are you going to send my claim to hearing? But there are guidelines for the claims analyst as well. If you get that request for hearing, you have to process that that uh, request for hearing right away. I mean, somebody's life is on the line. Somebody's money is on the line. And when you're messing with somebody's money, you know, it's just going to look bad for you. So you want to try to get those requests for hearings out as soon as possible. And it could be that it's not referred yet because the claims analyst has 10 claims and have 20 calls to return and can't possibly squeeze out. If you are a good juggler of your time, you can sort through papers while making phone calls. I mean, but it, it's hard to be that kind of person in that job. You don't want to miss something. Right. What's the best way a claimant can ensure a good working relationship with their analyst? If you get a phone call from your claims analyst, call them back. But call them back within a timely manner. Sometimes you're trying to get a hold of somebody to find out, did you get the temporary total disability form? And I can't set up your temporary total disability form until you call me. Call them right back. That, that They're waiting for you to call. So have the line of communication open. If, you, if you've moved, change your address. If you've changed your phone number, call and give them your phone number. Because some claim claimants have not changed their phone number in your log, you're trying to get a hold of them and you can't, then you stop payment. Well, then they're mad because they didn't get their, their check. But it would have all been okay had you just called the claims analyst and say, hey, I have a new number or my number was shut off. Can you call this number and leave a message? And, you know, communicate with your claims analyst. Keep them up to date. And we hear this fairly often, um, but stories of claimants, you know, calling up and yelling at their analysts about where their check is. And I guess it would probably be good for them to know whether or not that can do any good at all. Well, once they look at the notes and look at the file, they can tell, anybody can tell if the claims analyst set up a check and it's scheduled to go out. So they could call the claims analyst, and if they're not there, you can get a hold of the manager or their partner. And anybody can tell you if your check was set up and if it's already gone out. Once it's gone out, we would always tell them, it's going to take 10 days before we can even do a research on where that check is. So let's just say that it went out, but the postman delivered it to somebody else's address by mistake because that can happen well by the time they get that from the person they delivered it to back to the post office and back to the division well we can't do anything about it until 10 days with the post office okay at that point it's considered a loss and we'll replace it but if you get the new check or the old check back then you've got to call the claims analyst because that's going to be canceled now 
It's as soon as you call and fill out that paperwork that says, I never got my claim, my check, and it's been two weeks, we're going to get you a hand check done, but do not cash the other one because it's canceled. <laughs> so does that cover Yeah, what I mean? so, I mean, essentially the thing to know is that once the check has been ordered, it is out of the analyst's hands. That's right. Once it's gone out in the mail, it's out of our hands. We can't tell you where that check is. We've got to wait. And I think that's good for people to know just because I think there's a lot of frustration and stress. And understandably, when you're living paycheck to paycheck and it's less than what you're used to. That's right. One thing I want to talk about next is a lot of claimants have their system or um, symptoms essentially resolved, but then they might need treatment, you know, every three months, four months, or sometimes even just once a year. And I'm not sure that all claimants get good advice on this. And so I'd like it if you could share with our listeners what you would advise claimants who had kind of minimal but necessary ongoing treatment for injuries. Well, let's just say that um, they continue on physical therapy, but now the doctor's saying they can return to work. So I always remind claimants that if you have a follow-up appointment with the doctor, make that follow-up appointment. Because if you skip and you wait a year to go back, but you've had continued pain this whole time, they'll say, I just didn't have time to go. Well, that doesn't help us in making a determination on your claim because you didn't have time to go. Make time to go. Some doctors have Saturday appointments. Um, some doctors have late weekday appointments. You've got to call and make an appointment. Take a lunch appointment. Because if you have something serious going on, working through that whole year is not going to help your claim. We're going to question at, a one, at one year, what happened? What were you doing in that whole year? Did you get a new job? Are you, are you working outside your, your restrictions? I mean, there's a lot of questions we ask why is this claim being reopened? So if I would tell people as soon as they went back to work, if you feel like you need to go see the doctor for that injury, you need to go. Once they've have they've had an impairment rating and any percent of impairment, you will probably need to see the doctor at least once every six months to keep your claim open or to make sure that you update your doctor that there's any changes. That was my advice all the time. If you wait three years, then you're gonna get a letter and you're gonna need to prove why you're going back to the doctor and how it's related to your original injury. What happens at that three-year mark? Then, like I said, they, they've gotta go through all the paperwork that says Do you have a new job, where have you worked in the last three years, there's just a, a long list of questions that you have to, to do. And you also have to go back to the doctor. You probably have to get all new MRIs. And at the end, the doctor could say, this definitely is related and it can get reopened. We might have to send you for an independent medical evaluation to figure out, is this still related? There's a number of things, depending on what information we get back from the healthcare provider, if this is still related to the original injury. Did you re-injure that body part? Sometimes if it's a disc and we bought L4, now it's S1, well, 
how did you do that? <laughs> so we're going to need clarification from a doctor before we can ever open that claim. Did that fusion mess up that level above or below? And so is that that three-year mark, is that an automatic closing of the case, or how um, does that operate? The, com the computer is, the, is what closes the claim, and that's one of the things that some claimants just don't understand. We don't have time to look at every single claim and say, all right, can I close it? Are we able to do that at a year point? We could. If it was still open, we could review it. And if there's no medical records for six months, we can physically close the claim. But the computer actually closes the claim if there are no bills coming through. The computer will just say there's not been any activity on this claim, and the computer just closes it. And is that at the three-year mark? Uh, no. It could be at a six-month mark. It could be at a year mark. So that's why it's so critical to continue to treat every six months at least. Yes, at least. A lot of times, final determinations will issue that are adverse. Uh, is it helpful for the claims an or the claimant to try and negotiate that with the claims analyst, or should they just file the final determination, hire attorney, and go to hearing? I would definitely tell somebody not to miss their time frame on responding to the final determination. Can we make a different call after that's come in? Certainly, it could be just that maybe he was in the hospital, maybe he was out of town and he wasn't able to make that deadline. But um, let's just say um, a prescription came in and got denied and he didn't realize it because he still had medication and he missed his time to respond, but he still needs the medication. I mean, we could go back and say, well, he's been taking the medication. For some reason, the doctor didn't get, or the pharmacy didn't get the information they needed. They denied the claim. And, well, we just keep moving on. It's just like you're in a, you're in a train and you just keep moving. The claimant has to be up to date on all his medications, on his um, medical treatment. And if we can see that there was some kind of a hang up someplace, we certainly could say, oh, okay, we're gonna not send that to hearing now and we'll get that paid for you. If it was a medication that just seemed to me that, okay, it's within the formulary and he's been taking it, we look at the history of the medication and um, we've denied three months because you didn't call, and now you're calling because you didn't get it, well, we definitely are not gonna send something to hearing that we denied that was a total of $30 or $100. For the most part, it's better to say, yes, let's get that paid, and but the doctor said you can't take it anymore, so don't get any more, <laughs> you know? And I'd done that a lot, you know? Okay, uh, you got it, but the doctor said you shouldn't have gotten it, so I'll pay those three, that $30, but don't do it again. Okay, kind of so it's worth trying to negotiate with the claims analyst yeah. first. Yeah, I, I, I think the best thing for you to do is talk to your claims analyst, see where the drop in the ball was. Was it your drop? Was it our drop? I mean, Every, anybody's capable of dropping the ball. Well, and sometimes providers, too, don't necessarily De treat. Oh, definitely. Sometimes providers don't bring, send in their medical records from the last six months. You have no way of this guy's getting a new medication and we're going to deny the medication, but the doctor's notes aren't there to tell us that 
he's on a new medication. So most definitely, you know, we get the new medicate the new medical records and sure we can pay for that now. And so don't worry about the last three bills, we'll get those paid. And so we definitely can work on those types of things. And I know I keep saying in the present, I'm not working there anymore, but right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they definitely can work on those things and try to keep something from going to hearing. So the key would be always object to an adverse final determination, but then continue to communicate with the claims yes. analyst. Yes, most definitely. I think a claims analyst would rather pay a small bill than have to work a half a day preparing a legal package. I'm sure so. of that. <laughs> so we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I wanted to go into a little more depth now about um, what kind of red flags do you look for to determine if a claimant may be taking advantage of the work comp system? Uh, not going to doctor appointments. Um, I mean, claims analysts go out too. And if they um, see a guy that's out on the dance floor and but he can't work because he can't stand more than 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but he's dancing up a storm all night long. Well, there are red flags, red flags that the claimants can see. We have um, medical records that say this guy can't do that, but he says he's gonna come see you and we watch him walk through the parking lot and he doesn't have that problem, you know? So, I mean, there's, you can red flag a lot of things that you see or that you hear. We get calls from neighbors. We get <laughs> phone calls from family that says this oh, guy wow. is faking. He just wants to get that paycheck, and and you got to look into everything. So you can red flag a claimant for a lot of different reasons. I had no idea that you'd be getting phone calls from neighbors and family. Oh yes, <laughs> I've received phone calls from the neighbor that says this guy is receiving workers' comp and he's cutting his grass. Well, you know, you can have a hurt back, and you could still cut your back or your your grass. And um, I had carpal tunnel, and I still cut my grass. I mean, who's going to cut it for me? You know, there's some things that you have to do, but you got to look at those things too. You know, is it something that he definitely should not have been doing? Washing his car, you know, go to the drive up or drive through. But um, a lot of things can be red flagged. The way they take medication, maybe they're. They're not taking any medi medication at all, or they go and they get tested and they're not on any of the medications they've been getting. And that's been done before too. You can have them t tested to see if, they, if they're on pain medication and none of those medications come up, you know. At what point would uh, the division hire like an in investigator to investigate a claimant? When you get those types of um, phone calls from people that are concerned an employer will follow a claimant sometimes or an employer will um, get a <clears throat> a notice from another um, employee that says, you know, I saw this guy out yesterday and this is what he's doing and he could work, you know. So even employees will tell on you because they don't think it's fair that they have to work and you're not. <laughs> so if, if an employer calls and says, we need to get this guy investigated. Well, the employer's requesting it. You let them know how it's going to cost, and if he wants to proceed, they do. So is that a responsibility of the employer, then, if they want an investigation to pay for it? Yes. Yes, it's going to be applied to the employer account. 
And does the division have its own investigators, or do you hire, like, private investigators? Uh, there are a lot of private private investigators that are registered with the state of Wyoming, and you contact those uh, investigators. You give them all the information. You let them know when they have appointments. Uh, he goes to physical therapy every Tuesday and Thursday at 10 o'clock. They follow you. The investigators will follow them, and they will record and watch <laughs> what they do. Claimant should be aware that anything they're doing outside of their home could be videoed or observed by an investigator. If they are working outside those restrictions that their doctor has applied. What's kind of the most egregious, I guess, example that you've seen of someone kind of taking advantage of the situation or doing activities that they should not be doing? Um, hunting. I mean, I don't think that when you have an injury that you should be out hunting unless somebody else is, and which they're not supposed to do, shoot your game, <laughs> you know, and carry your game and carry your rifle through um, uneven terrain. You know, it's it, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, there are a lot of other people that, uh, I guess, sports. I told you about the guy that had the shoulder injury, but he was... Um, an arm wrestler. That one takes the cake, I you think. You know, that one, that one uh, we won in court because he, you have a, a, an injury, you're not going to work, and you have restrictions, but you're arm wrestling. You know, the other guy that I told you about that was a hunter, and he went hunting by himself, and when he got home, the um, investigator recorded him throwing the chains off of his truck, <laughs> carrying his, his deer into the you know, into the garage, you know, you shouldn't be doing those things if your restrictions from your own doctor say you can't do that. If you're on permanent disability, well, you can't work. If you're on permanent disability, if you're working, then you shouldn't be on permanent total. So there are some egregious examples out there. Yes, there are. But claimants should feel free to do things to stay healthy, like try to mow the lawn or anything that's allowed by their by their physician and and sometimes they if you call the claims analyst and you say well you know um we're gonna be uh walking well i always suggest walking to a person with a, a back injury i would tell them the best medicine for you is get out and walk because sitting down and watching oprah and and the price is right all afternoon laying down is not helping your back you need to strengthen your stomach muscles by walking and that's going to help your back i always probably wasn't a medical good medical advice but i always did it and i got a lot of thanks from my claimants that got off of workers comp because they walked so i had one guy that was on a ranch and he walked the whole ranch every single day and it was a, a big ranch i'm guessing but he went back to work right away three months and he had just had surgery wow so it tells me that they took your advice and worked within the restrictions. That's fantastic. Yeah. What about, how does social media factor into the investigation of claims? Okay. Um, workers' claims analysts were not allowed to go on social media to look up information. Um, if they had a suspicion that something was going on, then they would need to go through the manager. And, and I don't know what the process at the manager's level, but I think they were able to do that 
investigation, look and see if they were skateboarding and they weren't supposed to, whatever it, it is. Because people get um, on social media, they tell their whole life. They tell you what they're eating three times a day. <laughs> so basically the same thing. I mean, anything that they're putting out there on social media could be used against them. Used yep. against them. So they yep. need to be aware of it and work within the system. Yes. Yes. What are the penalties if someone actually is caught, you know, just blatantly defrauding the system? Um, a gal that I had that was, oh, let me see if I can recall. She was on workers' comp, but she was on vacation and using that arm to do something. She had a shoulder injury as well. And, and if you see the information and you have the information in front of you, videos from um, Facebook or um, newspaper articles like my uh, arm wrestler, you can send those to the treating physician and say, is this fraudulent? Are they working? Are they doing activities outside of their restrictions? And should they be returned to work? Their doctor making those determinations through workers' comp telling you that guy can go back to work. If he can do that, and I told him not to, and he can do that, he can go back to work. Those are the best things that stand up in hearing. Those are the things that probably are not going to go to hearing because they've been caught, you know, and they won't fight a claim. But some of them do. Some of them do go to court, and and there's not a very good chance of them winning their claim if they're working outside the restrictions or playing outside the restrictions. That makes complete sense. One thing that we've seen um, recently, and I, I guess it's probably been going on a lot, but Jason and I have both seen it here recently, but what are their claimants' options um, if the treating physician prescribes like a non-approved treatment or a non-formulary drug, but they absolutely need it? I mean, can, what are their options at that point? Their only options are to get those independent medical evaluation and see if the physicians can help. But for the non-formulary prescriptions, I mean, workers' comp just will not pay for them. It almost has to go through the court process and let that hearing officer make that determination. But so in the interim, when they need the medicine, their only option is to pay for it out of pocket? Pay for it out of pocket. And even with temporary total disability, these are the two things that if you have to um, get a prescription, file that reimbursement, at least it's on file and make sure that it's on file with the division so that if you win that claim or that, that uh, hearing, we've got those claims there and we can pay those reimbursements. There's no proof that, we, that you paid them out of pocket if we don't have the reimbursements. Same with temporary total disability. If we stop your temporary total disability and you're still at core and you're still on temporary total disability, continue to file those temporary total disability forms so that workers' comp is not trying to get those later on. And then it's too late. You're going back to court because you didn't find, file those timely. So always submit your reimbursements or your temporary total disability forms for things that you've paid out of pocket or that you didn't get so that workers' comp has those. It's an easier trail to follow, um, I guess, 
uh, I don't know how else to say it, than to have to go back for a whole year and try to get all that paperwork together. And from the perspective of a claimant's attorney, I can agree 100%. It's much easier if we've got seven months while we've been fighting through hearing of having TTD certifications from the doctor. Yes. If we prevail, then we don't have to go back and fight again over whether or not you were actually should have been certified for those seven exactly. months. Exactly. That's exactly have, right. And doctors don't want to certify them nine months down the line, they, <laughs> a year down the line. They've already been doing it the whole time they've been in hearing. And that's the thing that claimants may not realize, and, and we certainly realize because we work closely with the medical professions, is they really don't remember anything besides their records because they see so many patients. That's right. That's right, and it's hard to keep track for the doctors, for anybody. I mean, even for your attorneys, you know, how do you remember all that stuff? Well, and usually our caseload isn't so high that we don't forget the <laughs> claimant, like workers the current clients that we have. But yeah. once you've been doing it 10 years, I can look back at my files and I can see a name. And I never thought as a young attorney that I wouldn't recognize a name. But now I'm just like, they just disappear after like the five, fifth or six hundredth name. I yeah. Mean, they do. So. And doctors see countlessly more patients than attorneys see clients or probably even claims analysts see. Yes. Oh, yeah, because they got their workers' comp claims and they've got their non-workers' comp claims. I mean, it, even my own doctor doesn't sometimes remember what I was in last time unless he looks at the nose. <laughs> so. For sure. We've got one more topic for today, and then, you know, we may be able to, you know, have you back again to talk about some other stuff. But Okay. One of the things that we don't, we've seen, this seems to come and go in waves, uh, and it's the employers that object to everything no matter what, because they've been told that they have to, by someone somewhere along the line, that if they don't fight every work comp claim, they're going to, you know, pay these higher premiums. And so even completely meritorious claims are routinely objected to. And so I was curious as to what is the claims analyst's role in dealing with frivolous employer objections? Well, when an employer, I didn't have very many employers who objected to all their claims. I, I don't know if anybody had anybody, any employer like that. Um, there are some employers that will question, and it's the claims analyst's um, job to make it easier on them to, um, like I said, review the claim and determine that the causation in the job is what really, I mean, that that injury caused that job, or that injury, I mean, that job caused that injury, sorry, if that job caused that injury. So um, it's pretty clear when the guy's on the, in, on the work site and the brick falls from the building and hits his head that that's a good claim. You cannot question if there are witnesses to an injury. And it doesn't do the employer much good, and it's going to cost him so much more in court costs and investigation costs than uh, to just let the claim follow a course. To me, in my opinion, when I worked there, if you fight the claim, it just seems to go longer. And if you watch the claim and let it go through and let it follow its course, it seems to go smoother and end quicker. 
So if an employer objects to every claim, it's just costing him so much more money. And I think when you talk money to an employer, because it's hitting his pocket, <laughs> that it, it, you've got to tell the employer, you know, this is, this is where it is. And if we open the claim, then you're going to be fighting this outside of what we are covering. So I'm going to cover this guy, but you're going to go to court. And in the long run, you could lose the claim. And then you're going to pay all, you're paying the claimant's attorneys, you're paying your attorneys, you know. So it's easier to explain things in detail to the employer and let them know how you came to that determination. And one thing that we've seen that tends to help those claims either resolve or at least certainly make life less miserable for the claimant is when the division agrees to pay all benefits pending the resolution of the claim. Who gets to make that determination at the division? Um, I believe the attorney and the manager. I, I didn't have very many of those because it was either I'm denying the whole claim or we're going to settle out of court for this little bit and sometimes those can be lengthy processes however if the communication is open with like I said earlier the claimant and the claims analyst and you can get a manager involved most of the time to um, uh, pay those small claims rather than go to court same thing with the employers you know um, I just think that the claims analyst is always involved but it's probably safer for the claims analyst to go to the manager and make sure that everybody's on the same note. Well, thank you very much. It's been <laughs> really enlightening and enjoyable for me, and I really appreciate you coming by to take the time to talk to us You're today. You're very welcome, and I can't believe I remembered so much. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you.